Thank you. You may be seated. And uh, this morning we are, are, I've said it several times lately, but as we, as we track together in, in uh, this time of, of sharing and connecting with an understanding that um, truly we are called to be a community of the cross, that part of our vision is to see the way that the cross of Jesus Christ as we approach the focus on Good Friday of all that the Lord Jesus did for us to deliver us and set us free, that um, it touches every arena of life, that he shed his blood for us, that he gave the ultimate price, that the atonement is finished, that he cried out with a loud voice, it is finished. And part of that finished work Aside from all the awesome things God does in the heart of an individual as we respond to him is the connection, the community, the koinonia, the sharing in life in Christ together that is really the cure to the deepest crises that are literally ripping our American society apart. This is the cure. It's the cross. It's to come back to the cross. Well, in a very simple expression for our reading today, I just want to ask you to declare aloud together again with me before our children go to their classes, this truth, it is in him, and would you read aloud with me together this brief section from Ephesians chapter 2. Christ Jesus himself is our peace, for through him we have access to the Father by one Spirit. Let's declare it one more time. Christ Jesus himself is our peace, for through him we have access to the Father by one Spirit. Can we pray, Lord, thank you for the mighty power of this truth. Make it released and alive and applicable in every heart and life as we intersect with people across the spectrum of our lives in the next seven days. And in this congregation, Lord, use this time Lord, to anchor us anew and to send us forth on fire with the good news of all that the cross of Christ accomplishes, and we give you thanks and praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, two things. One, we'll dismiss our explorers and pathfinders now for their classes as I welcome uh, together, and I'm so delighted together today to be able to welcome Susan Matos back to Liberty Church I was thinking back about how many times we've been blessed through the years with the ladies coming from New Life for Girls so many times that the teams that have come over, Susan, and blessed our church with choirs, uh, ensembles, and um, that's always been such, such a blessing through the years in the past. And now to be able to reconnect and see what's happening now is a pleasure for us. I got to thinking just a little bit about how good it is that in all of our lives, we're enriched by sharing in mission. And this mission that uh, Susan expressed many years ago about her calling and uh, what she was directing and leading then, and as we've been catching up on the family and news, I didn't know for sure how many in the family. I knew that it was a beautiful family, but we're talking today that uh, Susan and Tito have been blessed as... uh, parents of five of their own and adopted five, so they're parents of 10 children uh, with 17 grandchildren now and five great-grandchildren. Let's give thanks and praise to God for his gift to this wonderful family. (laughs) Truly a blessing. And it's just, I want to just welcome you, Susan, back to Liberty to share your heart with us. Please take your liberty here. We mean that literally, Liberty. Come on over and would you just welcome Susan warmly today. We thank God. Thank you. It is such an honor to be here. I have to share a story, and if I can get through it without crying, it would be a miracle. My husband and I, we came to uh, Carroll County almost 42 years ago, and we were just two young people from the Bronx, never lived anywhere but the Bronx, knew nothing but the Bronx. And if you remember Carroll County 42 years ago, it was not the Bronx. And we came to this big old farmland, and we really had no idea 
what we were doing, but we knew God had sent us there. We knew that God had called us there, but what to do with everything, we had no idea. We had rabbits. We had all kind of chickens, all different kind breeds of chickens. We had, at the time, we had a, a quarter horse. We had dogs. We had... I mean, we've had everything that somebody would suggest, and we say, oh, all right. I mean, I come, f I, I lived in the projects. I wasn't even allowed a cat. So I have no idea what to do with any of these animals. And to top it all off, I came here eight months pregnant. I was miserable because I was like, I just felt so away from everybody, so alone. My parents were still in New York. My sister was in Pennsylvania. And here I am, ready. We were just married. We weren't even married that long. With a five-year-old and about ready to have a baby in a place that I have no idea. <clears throat> My husband at the time had an Afro. And we had a couple experiences because although we're both Puerto Rican, I'm very light, he's very dark. So people assume that culturally we were not the same. And we've had some experiences that was our welcoming to to Carroll County. And um, when we went to go to the bank to open up Do Life for Girls bank account, the KKK was having a rally right there in front of our, our bank. And here comes Tito with his big afro and at the time Pacheco with his big afro. And it was so frightening. It really was. and. I had really had nothing for the baby because we were just trusting and believing that God was going to supply all our needs. And this one woman's group from Liberty Church came. They had no idea who we were, and they brought me a baby shower. Half the ladies didn't even know my name. But you know how you that that um slide said community church. You guys have been a community church from the beginning of time because you guys met my need. You guys were God's hands extended because I knew that I knew that I knew whether I understood it or not, that God had me here for a reason. And I have been here with me and my family have been here for 42 years. I really didn't know we were gonna stay or we were just gonna start the ministry and hand it over to somebody else. We had no idea, but God used this church to validate that here's where I have you, and here's where I want you. I'm not going to say 42 years have been easy in this place. Because let me tell you, Carroll County is not easy when you don't have straight hair and you look like you just came from Florida. It's not easy. But you know what? God's hand has been on us. God's hand has been on the ministry. God's hand has been on all my children. We have seen nothing but God's blessings. We may have came, we might have come to New, to Carroll County totally lost and had no idea what in the world we were doing, but now we're part of the community. My children are part of the community. My grandkids are part of the community. So if you go to Honda and you buy a cart, that's my grandson. So we're here to stay. So I want to thank you. I know that some of you probably weren't even here at the time, but you know what? It was the heart of this church that confirmed that this was the place that we needed to be and that we weren't alone, that we weren't going to have to do our lives alone, and we haven't. The churches have come and individuals have come and have been very supportive of the ministry. I don't know if any of you really know who, what New Life for Girls is. New Life for Girls is very similar to the Teen Challenge. It's a, it's a home where what we're called here in Westminster is an introduction center, and what we do is the girls come to us and they spend three months with us and it's just what it is. We introduce them to Jesus. We have Bible classes, we have chapel services, we have devotions. What we try to do is try to keep their schedule busy for every single moment of their the time with us because the idle mind is a devil's workshop. And when you're just coming off of drugs and you're just coming off of the streets, it doesn't take a whole lot to get bored and for your mind to go places it doesn't need to go. And some of these girls, some of the pain is so, so deep, sometimes it's just easier to go back into that than to open that Pandora's, by, that Pandora's box. So we try to keep them really, really busy. So we do that with chapel services, Bible classes, 
And our Bible classes are very, very basic. Uh, a man called Jesus, quick look at the Bible, obedience to God, and just things that, just classes that will kind of introduce them to the man, the man called Jesus. At, the, at that point, our hope is that during the three months that they will give their lives to the Lord. Most times they do. Because let me tell you, when you're giving Jesus in the morning, Jesus in the afternoon, Jesus in the evening, either you accept him or you're going to run. And that's exactly what they do. If they're not ready, they run. But if they are, and then what we do at that point, then we send them to the training center, which is more like a college campus. Their classes are a little more, more intense. Counseling is more intense. At that point, they deal with more of if they have court cases, if they have children that they need to get back or whatever, they deal with that in Dover. We just deal with the basics. And um, though it sounds easy, it's not. Because we get them raw. Believe me, we get them raw. We've had, to, we've had them drive up in the driveway and tell the police, take the handcuffs off. You cannot bring them in the house like that. Leave her right here. And we take them from there. Because you, you have to remember, some of these girls, society and the community don't see them the way we're seeing them. We're seeing them as, as someone that God can touch, as someone that God can mold, that God can use this person. I was one of those people. I came to New Life for Girls in 1978. This is not what came through that door. Not in the least. And that's what we see. And I don't, I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not anti-cop or anything like that. They're doing their job. But we see them as something, as someone that God can change and miraculous and could do miracles in their lives. We have many girls, we have girls in this community, you have no idea they're from New Life for Girls. They're head nurses, they're court clerks, they're, there's faces out there that you smile and you smile and, and they take care of you and you have no idea they're from New Life. Because God completely does a work in their life and he just changes their lives completely. And the reason he created them and the purpose that they, that, that they came into this world for is being lived out because they allow God to touch their life. And that's what we try to do at New Life for Girls. At present, we do not have any girls because we have no staff. We, um, we've had a little rough spot there bouncing back from the pandemic. We, um, it's just a little difficult for the girls to, to come into the program because their needs are being met in different ways and they're frightened to give all that up to take a step of faith. And I don't blame them because they really don't know the Lord. Here we're telling them this is what God is going to do. This is how this program runs. And they don't know the Lord. So they don't, it's a little shaky, a little scary to give up whatever they have to take that step. So just continue to pray for us because we, we do realize that times are changing and there's certain things that probably have to change in new life too. I'm not saying compromise, but uh, there are things that might have to change we just don't know what that is right now. Um, I had a, a, we had a meeting the other day, all the directors with our executive director, and I, the, the way I describe it is, I don't know if, if any of you, know, you know how to play double dutch? Okay. You know when you're about ready to go in, and you're waiting for that opportune moment, and then you just zap, and you're in. And you, you could probably jump a bunch of times. That's how I feel we are in the ministry today, that we're waiting for that opportunity. And then once we're in, it's a done deal. God's going to take over from there, and we'll do whatever he asks us to do. This ministry has gone through many changes over the years, and we've been at this place before. And God has always been faithful. God has never let us down. God has always met all our needs. God has always been there when we needed him at, at, the, at, at the hardest times. He's always been there. That's why I enjoyed all the songs that you guys sang, because it was like, man, this is perfect, just perfect. God is faithful, and he's always been faithful and always will be faithful. I just wanted to ask you all just to continue to pray for New Life for Girls, that we continue to be obedient to whatever it is that he has us to do, and just continue to pray for us. Pray for our staff. Pray for the ladies that, that in the future will be in the program. And just continue to just always keep us in your hearts, keep us in your minds. In Jesus' name.
moment, and I wanted to ask uh, Susan to stay for a moment, and uh, David and Diane, would you just step up, please, and uh, lead us in prayer for uh, Susan. Um, Tito, there's some health issues dealing with some uh, COPD, and, uh, and, and what, a, what an opportune time just to pray for the ministry in this time of, uh, in a sense, it's reassessing and, and uh, relaunching probably in some yeah. ways. So would you just lead us? Praise you, Lord. Father, we give you praise and thanks for this great ministry in your life for girls. Um, I know personally I've seen uh, people who've been blessed by that. But Lord, I pray beyond some of us have maybe never met some of these women who have gone through and been in this program. But Lord, you know the hearts of people, and you know the difficulties people have, and you've provided this ministry to help a certain group of people in a special way. We ask you, Lord, to bless this ministry, provide their needs financially, provide their needs with uh, spiritual leaders, with the helpers that they need. And Lord, we pray you would draw the ladies who need to be in this ministry, draw them. Father, by your, your guidance, your strength, you can draw people to this. Draw them, but give them all the resources that they need to have a successful ministry, to meet all their financial obligations, and to have a staff to love the Lord and love the, the women as well. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Lord, we pray for Tito's health. We pray for him to get well. Lord, I know you're a God of miracles, and nothing is too difficult for you, so we ask healing in Jesus' name for Tito. And Father, we just pray that their faith will not fail. Lord God, we know times are changing, and, and circumstances and everything involved with reaching out and helping women, Lord God. But, Father God, I pray, Father God, that, that that place where they should leap would be so clear to them. I pray, Father God, that their faith will be encouraged and strengthened and made strong. And I pray, Lord, that this ministry will be even um, a bigger place for, for all these women who need to come, Lord God. We pray for the brokenhearted, Lord God. We pray for those who are bound to be set free in new life, Lord God. We pray for that in Jesus' name. We pray for encouragement to be upon Tito and Susan, Lord God, and we pray, Father God, that you would just bless them and honor them in these coming days in Jesus' name. Services here on the back table, another opportunity to get to know, uh, to get to know a little bit more about uh, life for girls and a blessing. Today, I want to invite you to open your Bible to two places in Scripture. Open your Bible to the New Testament to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and to 2 Peter chapter 1. And together today, we are sharing in part two of the Open Bible Workshop about one of the key ways that all of us are impacted and oftentimes maybe not as fully aware as we could be of this awesome truth. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, the Word of God describes for us the reality of what it means for God's Word to impact us, for God's Word to be imparted to us, for God's Word to deeply influence us, and for the reproducing of life from the Word of God. I'd like to ask you to think about something as you open uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. We'll start reading there, where when you read about the way that the Apostle Paul is describing in his final letter, the last epistle that comes from the pen of the Apostle Paul, it's actually in less than a year before Paul's life is taken under the persecution of the Emperor Nero. And Paul is writing to equip and prepare Timothy for some of these 
areas of responsibility that feel overwhelming, just as it is for all of us. We know that for all of us, there are areas of our life that can feel overwhelming to us. And when you think about it in that sense, it's a lot more than simply looking at how we open our Bibles, but it is actually getting to the essence of how we receive the Word of God. And what I see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, is the Apostle Paul showing Timothy the key to being prepared for the most difficult crises possible or imaginable in life. Now, Paul writes about the power of the Word of God in verses 16 and 17. And in these verses, Paul is giving all of us an opportunity to understand what we talked about last week. And that is when we saw last week that the goal of this time together is to refocus, reconnect on something very basic, that is to send the roots of our faith deep in the soil of God's Word. And we saw that in the first chapter of Psalms with the vivid imagery of two different aspects of how the Word of God impacts us. One is that that Psalm talks about two different paths. One that leads to a flourishing, a thriving, even in very harsh circumstances. The other leads to a path that is a downward spiral. And then we saw that uh, that imagery is matched by the imagery of a thriving tree, a beautiful tree, a tree that is well-rooted and well-grounded. And in that picture, the ongoing development of life, the ongoing development of fruitfulness is not because of anything basic about the tree itself, it is because of the life principle that is being drawn into the very structure of the tree. Well, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, when Paul is talking about what it means to be a recipient of the Word of God, we have a great illustration of why that is so true. In essence, what the Apostle Paul does for us is to anchor us deeply into the truth of the inspiration of Scripture. And, and the, the, the core issue, and I'm having trouble finding the exact text in the digital Bible, so I'm going to do what I'll be recommending to you to do next week, and that's flip to the pages. <laughs> the digital apps can throw you off sometimes, and that, that's what happened to me. So in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, um, Paul is writing to Timothy about how to receive this word, how to let the word of God do its mighty work in you. And in that 14th verse, he says, you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them. And that, verse 15, from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now what's really notable here about verse 15 is that we saw last week that continuing in God's Word and staying in the Word and digging into the Word of God is the definition of a real disciple. A real follower of the Lord Jesus is someone who is actually in the Word and is exploring the Word of God and recognizes that when we come to the power of God's Word, we're talking about something that lifts us up above the level of mere words. And so when verse 15 describes Pete, Timothy's relationship to the Holy Scriptures, 
Oftentimes, we're tempted to think of our Bibles in this sense that what really matters is when something just explodes into our imagination, when we get that aha moment and suddenly we see something and the lights come on. And that is awesome and we love that. And that is at the heart of real discovery in our walk with God. I can point back to points in my life where something that I had seen before, read before, heard before, and all of a sudden as the Holy Spirit ignites that truth, it becomes for me more than just something I've read and understood on one level, it becomes a life-empowering reality. But here's the problem we've run into over long periods of time in the Christian community is that partly because our generation is becoming less and less literary and our, our generation is becoming less and less readers. So what happens is we want those great aha moments, we want the lightning bolt, but we're not feeding the inner man and we're not preparing the heart and mind so that what 2 Timothy 3.15 talks about, what Paul is explaining to Timothy in this last epistle before he literally gives his very life in love for Christ, boldly declaring the life-giving word of God. And these truths became foundational not only for Timothy's personal life and ministry, but for the Ephesian church that Timothy was the primary senior leader of over that era. So what we can draw from this is that when Paul prays the prayer for the Ephesian believers in Ephesians 1, 16 and 17, and he says, I pray that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that you may know the hope of your calling and the glory of the riches of this inheritance in the saints. I pray that your eyes would be enlightened. In the third chapter of Ephesians, he matches that prayer with a prayer that matches what we saw in Psalms. I pray that your hearts would be strengthened with Christ dwelling in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend the full dimensions of the love of Christ which passes knowledge. So in Ephesians 3.17, Paul is praying for the, 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 the believers of that Ephesian body of believers in the way that he's instructing Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15, that those things you've continued in, those things you've heard, press into them more. For he said in verse 15, even from a child you have known the Holy Scriptures. Now that leads us then to this amazing truth about what it is to awaken to this reality of inspiration. In 2 Timothy 3.16, if you'd look at that uh, verse in your own Bible, notice that it says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, when you read this, you, you see in that 16th verse the heart of this, what I call the wonder of inspiration. And last week in the introductory phase of uh, looking at how we go to Scripture and we look at the actual context of the words, we saw that, in essence, God has invested in the written Word of God an inestimable treasure that is always beckoning us to discovery. And part of that treasure are the very words that were given in the original language, in the original manuscript, through the human writer. One of the wonderful things about looking at 2 Timothy 3.16, to me, is that it brings this truth of the value of the words to the heart of every child of God. And let's think a little bit about why that's true. In the middle of verse 16, 
Paul uses this word inspiration. Now, that's a word that can easily be misunderstood in English because we think of certain things being inspired or inspiring, and that's true because God has designed human language uh, to do exactly that. But what this text is emphasizing is that there is a kind of, there's a level of inspiration that is of a totally different order than the inspiration that we might draw, say, from a moving piece of poetry or literature or a song. And to get to the heart of that difference or that meaning, it's important to compare both the Old Testament and the New Testament use of this word inspiration in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to start with the Old Testament and toggle back to that 16th verse of 2 Timothy 3. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for breath or wind, the same word for the Spirit of God, is ruach, and it, it literally means a, a, a gale force wind, uh, but its use in Genesis chapter 1 and Ezekiel 37 and throughout the Old Testament is of the permeating, thorough influence of the omnipotent working of the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to put into English language the magnitude of what is described in the second verse of our Bibles when the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And the Spirit of God, the Ruach of God, was hovering over the waters, preparing. Think of the, the awesome and un indescribable magnitude of what God was doing through the Holy Spirit, literally overseeing and hovering over and, and, and permeating the chaos that awaited the flourishing of the Word of God. Now, that ruach use of that word occurs in many applications of what the Holy Spirit did in the Old Testament. One of them is the, is the force of the wind in Exodus 15 of, that parted the waters of the Red Sea, but also in Ezekiel chapter 37, I think a notable example of what 2 Timothy is talking about is that... Um, the prophet Ezekiel had been apprehended by God in a way that demonstrates exactly what the text in 2 Timothy 3.16 is saying in that God chooses a human vessel. God chooses a human instrument, the man, Ezekiel, and says to him in the second chapter, Son of man, stand up upon your feet and I will speak to you. And then Ezekiel says, When I stood, the Spirit of God whoosh, the Spirit of God, in a sense, permeated me, lifted me up, and I heard him say, thus says the Lord, this is what you shall say to the house of Israel. And that very same ruach of God, that, that rush of the omnipotent permeating power of the presence of the Holy Spirit is then brought into one of the most consequential visions of the entire book of Ezekiel in the 37th chapter where uh, Ezekiel in vision is brought to a valley of dry bones. It looks like total deadness, total desolation, something completely bereft of life. It looks like the aftermath of disaster. It parallels the earth without form and void in Genesis 1. It's a scene of utter desolation and Apparently, from the natural standpoint, no hope. And God takes Ezekiel to the valley of dry bones. And he says, speak to the bones. Now, as an instrument of God's word, he's speaking to the bones, to the bones that look impossibly, totally beyond hope. And the Spirit of God begins to bring life into the bones until an and the emergence of a, of, a, of, a, of a person of the thriving of life. And this becomes a picture, a, a, a visual demonstration 
for their day of what God would do with the impossible desolation of his people in captivity. But it also illustrates, if we go back to 2 Timothy 3, it illustrates one of the beautiful aspects of what Paul was writing to Timothy, when you find yourself in the midst of crisis, when you find yourself in the midst of that which looks impossible, humanly speaking, that you now are the heir of the treasury, verse 15 says, of the Holy Scriptures, the written Word of God, and in whatever form you're holding that written Word of God, you are the heir of this eternally powerful, impactful treasure in which God shows to bring the very same dynamic, life-creating, omnipotent power and invest it in what appear to be feeble human words. The text of 16 of chapter 3 of 2 Timothy puts it this way, all Scripture, and that is emphatic in the Greek, meaning we might put it like this. We might say that every paragraph, every content capsule, every sentence, every phrase in the original autograph was God-breathed in the full dimensions of exactly what was, we might say, illustrated by the word of the Holy Spirit coming to a valley of dry bones. That is, God has been, from Genesis 1, in the activity of the Holy Spirit, upon the planet, upon the universe, God was preparing for a treasure that, friends, you and I now can hold in our hands in a hardback or leatherback or paperback or in some digital device, if you can get your app to work better than I did, on my tablet, and you're looking at the Word of the living God, and it is there for you. And here's a kicker that I, I can explain more later. I won't take too much time on right now, but here's a kicker. Our generation wants experience. Our generation wants immersive experiences. Restaurants, businesses, banks, department stores, malls, shopping centers, TV programs, everything imaginable in our life right now, even churches are, aimed, are building this around the concept of giving people an immersive experience. And of course, the reason for that is that we're experientially and often emotionally driven. And that's not bad in the sense that it's a human experience. That is, God has designed us as emotional creatures. The problem is that our generation has become so focused on finding an experience that we love or that matches our expectation that as followers of Christ, we're losing the significance of the value of daily study of the written Word of God for not only because we're not geared that way, but also because we underestimate the Scriptures. Let me put it this way. We are a generation that is underestimating, undervaluing, and often blindly missing the value of what 2 Timothy 3.15 calls the Holy Scriptures. Yes, these words are still God-breathed. In fact, the text of 2 Timothy 3.16 uses a Greek word that apparently, as the usage of that word had, does not occur anywhere else in the New Testament, it seems to be one of those cases where the Apostle Paul, reaching into the vast unknown of linguistic expression, has to coin a term to characterize exactly what is being said. The words are important. The words are God breathe. Let's think a little more about the two levels of inspiration. Now we know there's a lot of things in life that inspire us. How many of you have been inspired by something that's a good story? Of course you have. You know, a beautiful song, a, a wonderful a, a, a movie that brings tears to your eyes. All of that that we might call inspiring is, is a good thing. It's part of the goodness of God. The songs we had today we're talking about. God in his goodness in common grace has 
graced us with many ways that people are inspired, small i, lifted up, elevated. And um, I think the, the, one of the best examples of that to me is something that um, Elie Wiesel wrote about uh, 35 years ago. Elie Wiesel was, is probably one of the three people in my mind that, are, that were most notably used to awaken an entire generation uh, in the 60s and 70s, even earlier in the 50s, to the tragedy of the Holocaust, along with Corey Ten Boom and, uh, and um, others like Dietrich Bonhoeffer for the Christian community, that uh, Elie Wiesel's words had an illuminating and really an electrifying impact on people who really grasped what Wiesel was saying about the Holocaust. And, and Wiesel himself... In his comments on how the Torah, the Old Testament scriptures, impacted his own life. But in describing the work of a, an inspiring work of literature, Wiesel writes this, that a poet takes everyday words like bread or wine or air or life or death or childhood and somehow by putting one after the other... Now, we're just talking about a normal writer. By putting one after the other and by introducing silence into them, the poet produces a certain electric current. Suddenly, routine words burn and burst in your heart, in your mind, and in receiving these words, you become poetically receptive. Now, remember, this is an example of the low level, just human inspiration purely human. And yet God has endowed humanity with a capacity to write music and words and, and create movies and, and uh, art that is incredibly inspiring, incredibly elevating and illuminating. And yet, that on the natural level is but a fragment, but a tiny shred of Value compared to the capital I inspiration that 2 Timothy 3.16 is describing. Not only is the God who created the capacity to inspire the one who gives us these gifts. Oh, but far more than that, Paul is saying, Timothy, from a child, you've known the Holy Scriptures. And these Scriptures have become familiar to you. Some of them have. And, and yet, you now need to understand all Scripture is given through the God breath. It is all Scripture. Every paragraph, every phrase is, is God-breathed. Theopneustos saying the very words themselves convey the life-giving power of God. And so, when we start with that, then we can begin to understand why so many things, for example, even in the Old Testament, brought the believers to this understanding of why they needed the Word of God. And I always like to think of it this way, uh, when we talked about uh, uh, some of these Old Testament examples, uh, I was thinking last week as well, that if you think about it, whenever we are confronted with um, our own inability, our own struggles, our own needs, if we can draw this kind of impact from the Hebrew Scriptures that were written before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the New Testament writers would say, how much more in the mighty power of His resurrection life should the Word of God be cherished by us? When when the Word of God says in 1 Kings 8.36, teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. That prayer is activating, that prayer is activating the very principle of 2 Timothy 3.16, which is that every paragraph, every phrase is profitable to develop in our lives the teaching we need, the correcting that we need, 
the convicting of sin that we need, and the shaping of heart, mind, and soul in all of our lives that comes because of the fact that God has provided in the Scriptures that which will furnish us for every good work. The phrase in verse 17 of 2 Timothy 3 tells us that there is a furnishing, an equipping, a restoring that all of us need far more than we imagine. Now, what I would suggest to you is, because of this, that this becomes the source for all of us of, of understanding the way that God is going to shape our future. And we began today by thinking about the fact that there's two aspects to it. If the writer that we heard about is giving people a gift that they can receive in the spacing of those words, as Elie Wiesel described it, on a human level. How much more would it be true from something that comes directly from the mouth of God? How much more true would it be that when Jesus was confronted with his most severe crisis, humanly speaking, in the severe temptation described in Luke chapter 4, that Jesus spoke to Satan in the face of that brutal temptation, when Satan looked at Jesus and said, you have the power to turn these stones into bread, immediately what comes from the lips of Jesus is the declaration of that written word of God that had been burned into his soul when Jesus quotes to Satan from Deuteronomy chapter 6, man shall not live by bread alone but by what? Every word. That is, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, some, some people like to say, well, what really matters to me is the word that I get from God. Now, the beauty of this is that all through your walk with Christ, the Holy Spirit is illuminating and igniting His word in fresh applications to our lives. The problem we have, the unique problem of our time, the time, the problem of our generation, this generation, people like to talk about it in the media, this moment we're in. I'll tell you, the moment we're in, the moment we're in is ignorance of the Word of God. A vast, a vast wasteland. Was it Marshall McLuhan in the late 60s that called television a vast wasteland? Remember that quote? Well, today... <laughs> That vast wasteland has now encompassed multiplied millions, including millions upon millions of professing Christians who treat this word as if it's negligible only until something jumps out at me. Oh, I got it. No, the word of God is alive and powerful. Uh, the logos of God is alive and powerful. God sends his word. And in Isaiah chapter 55, he said it this way, that so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return unto me empty, but it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. Now God has chosen first to breathe it into the eternally, the eternal veracity of the written scriptures and then provide miraculously through the years so that copies upon copies, translations upon translations in the tools that we'll be looking at are provided so that we can enjoy and savor and cherish and live in the mighty power of the Word of God. So we can do, and let's just close with this, exactly what's described in Acts chapter 17 about the believers in this place called Berea. What a wonderful example and what a wonderful way to leave today that after the apostles planted a church literally thriving in spite of crisis and persecution in Thessalonica, and yet the, the, the persecution was so fierce the apostles literally had to flee Thessalonica for a time and then write letters back and then the church did, did begin to thrive. But Thessalonica was a troubled spot. It was a crisis moment. And yet they come to this little 
community less than 40 miles away called Berea. And the Bible tells us about the believers in that place called Berea. That is notable for how they responded to the very treasure we've been talking about today. And let's read it aloud together. What did they do? It says, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And I like to think of this one as the exact opposite of credulity. Credulity means somebody who will just accept something without examination, accept something because an influential person said it. Ad advertisers use this all, all the time because this celebrity said this, oh, you should believe it because she took these vitamins and uh, now she's been miraculously healed and she's, she has no more problems. You should take that same supplement. So we have that mentality in our brain, credulity. We'll just swallow something because somebody said it that we believe in. But you see, the believers at Berea knew better than that. They said, now look, we like this Apostle Paul guy. He's okay. You know, uh, we can break bread with it, dude. <laughs> but is what he's saying about the resurrection of Jesus, is that really the things that he's describing about the fulfilling of those prophecies? And they're searching the scrolls of what they had to see whether these things were so. And, and in that, in that uh, dynamic crisscrossing of, of the heart's response and the eternal power that's invested in the Word of God itself, their hearts became alive to the truth, and the opposite of credulity is a deepened faith. What did we say our goal is the, in this is? To send the roots of my faith deep in the soil of God's Word. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, very simply, test all things hold securely to that which is proven. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 would verify what the believers in Acts 17.11 did. They didn't just accept on face value because of the persuasive power of the speaker. No, they searched the written word, the treasury of unfailing, inerrant, powerful truth that God has given us. So this is like very foundational, I realize that, but I believe there's a time and need in the body of Christ today to come back to the basics of this foundational truth, that you've known the Holy Scriptures from a child that are making you wise unto full salvation in Christ. So what is it? All Scripture? Would you say those two words aloud with me together just before we close? All Scripture? All Scripture? And of course, every paragraph? every phrase, every word that God originally gave. Yes, we have to work with the reality of that in our lives and to know that it's priceless and it's eternal and he's going to bring it to pass. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today for uh, helping us grasp what it means to see the significance of the very words of God. Lord, we are in a time in which it doesn't come instinctively to us to do this. So I pray that with fresh eyes, with fresh anticipation, with fresh openness of heart, that we would cross that barrier of credulity into bold and thriving and vibrant faith in the power of the eternal word of God. Amen.